Hello friends, welcome back. My guest today is Thomas Moynihan. He's a historian and an author, and we're talking about the history of existential risk. Humans may only have had the ability to destroy ourselves for the last hundred years or so, but thinkers have been hypothesizing about the potential end of existence for thousands of years. Today, Thomas explains the history of how humanity came to realize its potential for extinction. As far as I'm concerned, existential risk is the topic that no one is talking about, which the entire planet should be focused on, and getting a backward-facing view that actually gives us the foundations of how we've arrived at our understanding now is super interesting. I thought, well, what's the point of looking back, given that the existential risks that we're encountering will be in the future? But actually, we can learn an awful lot. We learn about the principle of plentitude and about conceptual inertia, tons of really interesting insights from intellectual history, which is basically the, the history of ideas. And that's what Thomas looks at. He's awesome. Uh, I really hope that you enjoy this. And if you are interested in getting into more of this topic, we give you some great book recommendations throughout the episode. So feel free to delve into them. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. But now it's time to learn about the history of our own extinction with Thomas Moynihan. Thomas Moynihan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. If we're worried about existential risks annihilating our future, why spend any time studying the past? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, so uh, I hope as we talk through this, uh, the, the true uh, significance of what I'm about to say will um, be elaborated further. But um, I think that it's so easy to focus on uh, the risks coming towards us, coming down the track. Um, and it's slightly harder to take stock and look backwards and see just how far we've come. One of the things I mean by that is that uh, the very ability for us to even be able to see those risks ahead, uh, the risks on the horizon, uh, that's a massive achievement uh, for, for humanity, um, for for our knowledge of the world, for our knowledge of what is best to do within the world, um, that's a massive achievement. And again, I hope that you know, as we speak through this, uh, you know, um, the truth of this might uh, hopefully kind of uh, unfurl. Um, but 
you know, some of our biggest achievements are almost invisible to us. Um, some of, you know, uh, some of the most profound um, uh, breakthroughs of human knowledge are often invisible to us. Um, so, you know, I often point towards the fact um, of, uh, well, take slavery, for example, for most, for the majority of human history, uh, people presumed that it was just part of the natural order of things. Uh, you know, um, it wasn't questioned. Uh, all of us these days kind of take it for granted that uh, that's, you know, inherently wrong. Um, another example I like to use uh, is um, perspective, right? So, you know, think back to being a kid in school. Um, you'd learn to draw your first cube or your first uh, uh, prism or, you know, triangle, uh, pyramid, sorry. Um, it's so easy. It comes to you so naturally. Uh, rewind, you know, uh, six centuries, seven centuries. Uh, it wouldn't have come naturally at all. Uh, you know, I was drawing cubes, I don't know what age, but pretty young. And that's not because I'm a genius or a prodigy or some Da Vinci tier, uh, you know, mega genius. It's because of uh, cultural osmosis, because the ideas that we just take for granted, we inherit, but someone had to come up with them. And well, often lots of people have to come up with them and it takes, uh, you know, centuries, decades of effort, of hard work, of error correction, uh, of finding out the ways in which we are so severely wrong about the world. Um, and yeah, so to tie up my point, um, thinking, being able to even notice these risks, uh, the risks facing humanity, or just the fact of how bad uh, human extinction would be, um, those are really uh, huge achievements and they're quite modern ones as well. Uh, so yeah, I, I would say, I would put it like this. It's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a cure for despondency um, because like I said, it's easy to see the risks ahead, uh, harder to see how far we've come. So it's easy to be despondent, it's easy to despair, um, but it's deceptively easy because we have that kind of bias where it's easier to look straight ahead rather than look to the past. Are you trying to say that a book about the annihilation of humanity is somehow hopeful? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I, I, I often get this when uh, people uh, read my book. They, they uh, are surprised that um, it has this, well, it, it, attempts, it attempts to have this, this hopeful message. Um, but yeah, nonetheless, it does. It does. Uh, you know, and, and funnily enough, I came into all this way less hopeful and um, I'm not sure if this, it would be the perfect, the right word, but um, more fatalistic. Um, and it was through actually like tinkering through, tracing through uh, the contours of like discovery and intellectual progress and, you know, just how far we've come in terms of, you know, even if we know that we're not true or we have 100% certainty of anything right now, uh, there's just the, the ability to realize that we're wrong, right? To realize that we're wrong and therefore realize that we can know better, uh, we can correct ourselves. I find that fascinating. So yeah, um, yeah, I think it's a hopeful book. Uh, I hope it's a hopeful book. <laughs> I think so. You mentioned there, I think, quite an important point. You say the, the ability to grasp the prospect of our own extinction is a significant intellectual achievement. It separates us from other animals. Are you also trying to say that that's something that we should be thankful for, this species-wide denial of death that Ernest Becker, like, turned up to a million, would be proud of? Yeah, I mean, so 
there's uh, there's a, a, a Jonathan Shell. He was a guy that wrote a book, The Face of the Earth, in the 1980s, um, and it was one of the first books. It's relevant to this discussion because it was one of the first books to uh, really like crisply state how bad human extinction would be. So this was in the context of the Cold War, um, you know, thermonuclear proliferation. Uh, and he, amongst other people, and we can we can talk about this later if we want. But amongst other people, pointed out this kind of asymmetry and how bad extinction is compared to lots of other, you know, kind of disasters is that it's the foreclosure of the whole future. Um, the way, one of the ways in which uh, Shell expressed this was that there are these two deaths. So the first death is the death that we're all kind of familiar with, uh, our own death, our individual death. And so that's the kind of Ernst Becker denial of death. You know, a lot of culture um, is in a sense kind of, you know, seems to be this, that humans have this unique awareness of our immortality. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not too familiar with the Becker thesis, but like, you know, say that, say that was clearly one of our, one of the kind of foundations of culture, right? Humans, since they started using language, became behaviorally modern, uh, have probably been kind of aware of mortality in that sense. Um, but yeah, then Shell makes this point that there's this second death, uh, which is the death of the whole species and the loss of its entire future. Um, and that's the more modern achievement. So uh, yeah, we've been denying death since day one, I guess. But uh, being able to think about this second death, this you know ultimate fate, the loss of the entire future, um, yeah, that's a lot more recent. Uh, and so I'm hoping that we can level up our denial of death to that kind of civilization scale. <laughs> that's so funny. Can you give, for the uninitiated, for the people that haven't taken the existential risk red pill, what is the most compelling hammer blow? that you can give them about why there is an importance to existential risk. I'm already one of the initiates, right? I pray at the altar. I wear the weird mask with the long crow nose on it. Like, you don't need to convince me, but what to you is the hit in the existential soul example that you can give people? Mm, yeah, yeah. So so, so for me, the kind of penny drop... Um, uh, the best place I've seen it argued uh, is um, uh, a philosopher, Derek Parfit, who um, actually was Nick Bostrom's, uh, uh, one of his teacher's supervisors. Um, so, and this is around the same time as that Jonathan Shell book that I just mentioned. So in the, in the 80s, uh, he wrote this uh, book called Reasons and Persons. Uh, and it's, you know, this kind of voluminous, uh, meticulous tome of, uh, you know, kind of... Um, uh, very detailed ethical philosophy um, and it's it's a masterwork uh, you know um, but it's you know kind of deeply philosophical deeply complex but in the last couple of pages he makes this argument um, about that asymmetry that I just pointed to um, and he so he makes the, the, I think this is the best place this argument's been made so I'll try and rehearse it so he says think of three scenarios uh, the first one is peace the second one is a, uh, a nuclear exchange wherein uh, 95 to 99% of humans uh, are killed. Uh, the third one is, uh, is some kind of exchange where 100% of people are killed. Uh, and then he says, where is the biggest difference? Is it between one and two? So between peace and 95 to 99%? Or is it between the 95 to 99% and the 100%? Now, intuitively, and, you know, our moral intuitions are often wrong. Uh, intuitively, you might kind of think instantly, 
uh, well, obviously, it's the difference between the first, you know, the first and the second. It's the difference between peace and, you know, the, the 95 to 99% fatality. Uh, Parfit makes uh, the argument that that's absolutely not the case. The larger distinction, uh, the larger difference in severity is between two and three. Uh, and that's because, again, it's the loss of the whole future. Uh, so he makes uh, these points that, you know, the Earth is likely to remain habitable for another billion years or so. Uh, within that time, uh, there will be vastly more generations of humans than there already have been. Uh, so, you know, civilization itself has only existed for like something like 10,000 years. Um, so if we don't screw things up, uh, there's a lot of future ahead of us, uh, a whole lot of future. And this is just constraining it to the earth, right? Uh, there are other places we can go and other places where we can have even more future. Uh, so basically we're kind of in the daybreak of uh, civilization of the human story. Um, and so since then, you know, uh, other people have uh, extended uh, Parfit's argument. And it's so funny to me that Parfit kind of, it's like a throwaway in the last couple of pages of this, this huge book. Um, but, you know, namely it's uh, Nick Bostrom, for example, he uh, kind of formalized the concept of central risk. Uh, you know, the first paper where he talks about it uh, is from uh, 2002 or 2003. Um, and he makes this further point uh, coming from uh, this kind of transhumanist lens where um, it's not just kind of the duration of the future, it's also how much more quality there could be in it, because, you know, uh, should humans use their technology in the right way, uh, there's this whole kind of possibility space of other experiences uh, above the human condition. Um, so, you know, I think a, a way that people often put it is that, you know, uh, mice probably aren't very good at experiencing symphonies, uh, but we are. Uh, so there's presumably kind of there's presumably headroom above us, right? You know, there's kind of orders of magnitude potentially. Uh, so you add this extra transhumanist kind of uh, you know um, uh, spin on it, um, and yeah, I think all the pieces are, are together there. Um, you know, uh, Toby Ord's now uh, kind of given an even more uh, even simpler uh, and even more effective possibly definition of the whole thing. Uh, but yeah, for me, it's those arguments that really, um, really drive it home. Uh, you know, um, particularly the Parfit one, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to uh, miss that fact uh, that, you know, it's not just uh, 7 billion lives at stake. Uh, it's not just, you know, the current population of the world. It's our whole future and our whole potential as well. Didn't Bostrom come up with a number of 10 with 100 zeros after it? Isn't that in your book? If we do a, an okay amount of space colonization, this is the potential number of lives that we could have ahead of us. Yeah, yeah. So there are, there are, there are huge numbers out there. So um, uh, Bostrom has this paper, uh, uh, it's called uh, Astronomical Waste, uh, where he makes this argument that there's like a kind of opportunity cost uh for you know um delaying um space colonization uh given that there's you know there is actually finite uh resource um within the 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 kind of accessible universe uh, it's, it's so depreciatingly finite as well right for every second that we don't that's another bit of expansion that we can never anymore access mm, yeah yeah so he makes this argument that you know uh 
we could expand out and uh, you know create so many value structures and yeah that's his word for kind of people or you know uh, functional equivalents of people living happy uh, quality filled lives uh, and there yeah there are these computations of the the kind of upper bound of amount of uh, you know souls that we could spread throughout the universe um, uh, one of Bostrom's colleagues uh, Milan Serkovic uh, he uh, came up with a figure before then I I think it's some it's it's like a it's a kind of crazy uh, number. It's like a quadrilecterillion or something. I, I can't even pronounce it. It's humongous. But yeah, you know, go, go to those papers for the precise the precise uh, uh, figures. But um, yeah, I mean, so so uh, you know, there's there's a depreciating amount of this potential as well. But um, more recently, there's been this kind of uh, so Ord calculates that um, you know the the kind of opportunity cost of delaying is potentially you know not too awful and so we should be patient and uh, shouldn't you know kind of rush ahead if that uh, can you know um, foreclose our potential if we are too hasty i'm going to jump ahead to something that i've been thinking about for ages and you sadly thomas have the job of being um the recipient of all of my bent pent up x risk ideas um, because I don't get to talk about it to everyone. For some reason, not everyone wants to talk about the extinction of permanent and ultimate extinction of the human race. So it's you and now thousands of people that are listening. As far as I can see it, there seems to be three main factors at play, right, when we're talking about existential risk and how we should potentially move forward. The first one being the danger of technological progress, as Bostrom calls it, the putting the hand into the urn and pulling out a technology. This technology could be good and improve human life, but every so often you pull out one which is either grey or black. And if you pull out a misaligned superintelligence, then you, you, you're dead. Game over. And if you pull out a, a nanotechnology, turns us all into grey goo, then you're dead. And if you pull out an engineered pandemic, then you're dead. Um, so that's first bit. Need, there is a danger that's associated with technological progress. Secondly, there is a requirement of technological protection because there is a non-zero amount of natural risk. There are volcanoes and there are asteroids and there is the inevitable heat death of the sun and we're going to, you know, we need to continue to technological progress or else we assure that we're going to have a limited future because we know that there is a non-zero amount of ex uh, existential risk that occurs naturally. So there's a balance between those two. And then the final part is the opportunity cost of delaying space colonization. Is that an okay framework to kind of view what we should be doing moving forward? That there is an opportunity cost, there is a requirement for us to not move too quickly as to pull out black ball, and that by moving a little bit more slowly that we reduce the risk of pulling out black ball, but also we can't not move forward at all because there is the natural risk. Mm, yeah, yeah, I think I think that's a good way of um, uh, like taxonomizing the major uh, parts of the the, the, the argument. Um, yeah, it's 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 uh, precisely as you say. It's this you know um, mature acknowledgement of the risks uh, of technology, but conjoint with a mature acknowledgement of just how good uh, technology could create the you know uh, could could make the future. Uh, but then also, yes, that also the other acknowledgement that um, without technology, uh, kind of background natural risks will, you know, the probability will accumulate over time. And, you know, it's a death sentence. Uh, it's just a delayed one. Right. Um, you know, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and that's what's novel about it, um, historically speaking. Um, and so, you know, we can go into the long the long run history of this stuff because, you know, that's 
that's what I love. But, um, you know, it's people have been uh, talking about human extinction, like as a, uh, you know, as a natural possibility for, um, I would say, you know, kind of uh, three centuries, two centuries, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, you know, uh, then it becomes, uh, during that time with, you know, we're talking kind of scientists during the enlightenment, uh, you know, they're kind of playing around with it as this, uh, you know, interesting philosophical, uh, natural philosophical possibility. Um, but it remains very kind of distant, very far off. Um, and then, you know, it's really around World War Two uh, and uh, the production of nuclear weapons, um, and then you know uh, these humongous uh, nuclear weapons like uh, the Saar bomb and you know these kind of really significantly powerful ones um, in the 1950s. Um, that the idea of you know uh, the idea of human extinction, which had previously just been possible, becomes slightly more probable, plausible. Uh, and therefore a policy issue. So people have been talking about, you know, this worst case scenario for 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 decades, but often it was constrained to uh, one technology, that being uh, nuclear weapons. Um, and uh, often there were kind of like t kind of these quite um, distinct poles of thinking where, you know, um, it's often this kind of um, idea that, you know, uh, we need to just rush towards technology, have it all. Uh, that's that's what will save us. Or oh no, technology is bad. We should, uh, you know, kind of um, be careful with what we do with it. This is what's innovative around, um, you know, Bostrom's work and people in that kind of area is this, you know, mature acknowledgement that it's, you know, the poison and the cure, and therefore requires lots of care um, and uh, lots of careful thinking and um you know it, what's really great is it's kind of given a shot in the arm to philosophy because it's you know there are these philosophical questions that we need to figure out before we have the you know the the the, the technologies uh to wield that you know wield the power on the world so uh so yeah that's that's how i see it and that's why i see it's important yeah as far as i can see man it is the most important conversation to have it is it blows my mind that we have Greta Thunberg rolling around, going on a, a pedalo from fucking South America back to Europe or whatever to try and reduce her carbon footprint, to talk about a problem which is going to affect us on an existential risk scale in millennia. And we don't have any... I mean, in the nicest possible way, like... Nick Nick spends a lot of time working. He's he's not fantastic with media obligations. I think he probably had to save up about seven seven months worth of his allowance to go on the Joe Rogan experience. And also the last hour of that podcast was the most painful hour of any podcast in history. Um for for anyone that doesn't know what I'm talking about, just listen to the first hour and a half and then please do not delve into the end of it. Um, so I want to get into kind of my thoughts around culturally the problems with existential risk. But as you say, we've got this this sort of wonderful research that you've done to do with the history of X-Risk. You actually start with this kind of cool timeline thing that's all drawn out of the the, um, the landmarks of the, the, the life of existential risk. You mentioned that existential risk in prehistory before 1600 BC was framed differently to how it is now. Why? Mm, yeah, yeah. So... 
I would say that the, the, the concept simply didn't exist, right? Uh, people couldn't think about it. Um, and again, yeah, this goes back to what I was saying earlier is, you know, one of the things that really, you know, drives me. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm just a historian. Uh, I'm interested in, you know, this this amazing work, this super important work uh, in existential risk. But, you know, the experts in that are not me. I'm I go through and I try and, you know, tell the story of how we got here, which I again, like I said, I think that's important uh, moving forwards because people so often fail to um, notice the potential of humanity and part of that potential is looking backwards as we were talking about but anyway so you know there are times when there are new ideas uh you know um ideas that haven't occurred to anyone before um so the the obvious ones uh the the i think you know most people are familiar with are things like you know darwin's theory of natural selection um you can go back and you can find uh you know you can pick through the ancient greeks and you can find someone here and there saying, oh, maybe maybe uh, humans used to be fish. Um, that's not that's not a theory of natural selection, you know. Um, so often the way that like uh, history is done when it comes to the history of ideas, uh, it's a case of people kind of picking back through the past and going, oh, here's something that looks like this new idea. Um, and so that's that's absolutely the opposite of what what I wanted to do um i wanted to go no this thinking is new and that's why it's important um so you can go back and you can find uh these kind of uh you know the greats of uh, ancient greek uh philosophy uh talking about things that deceptively look a bit like extinction events right um so you know humans have always loved massive catastrophes uh we've always loved to to, to narrativize to talk about huge disasters calamities you know pyrotechnic volcanic explosions you know, you name it. Um, you can find Plato. Uh, he, he. So the, the myth of Atlantis, right? Uh, that's that's one of Plato's kind of. Um, you know, it's, it's a thing that he talks about, and he talks about these cataclysms that have wiped uh, civilization from the earth uh, in the past. Um, but then he says, as as humanity will be wiped from the earth in the future. So you can start to notice that there's a cycle occurring here. Uh, so uh, Plato, Aristotle, a lot of these um, kind of ancient authors, they would talk of these massive uh, catastrophes. But the important thing is uh, they were presuming that after the catastrophe, uh, humanity would return or recover. Uh, civilization would kind of just happen again. Um, so, you know, it's it's that's not an existential risk because the important thing in existential risk is the irreversibility. It's the fact that uh, our potential is lost forever. Um, the human species is gone forever. Uh, therefore, you know, it won't ever realize that potential. Um, the very idea that a species could disappear and never return uh, is a really modern idea as well. Like all of these ancient philosophers uh, spent most of their time thinking that uh, you know, if a species disappears, um, it doesn't matter because it will kind of uh, it will uh, continue to exist elsewhere, or it will just return at another time. Um, so you can find you can find them saying stuff like this. There's one in particular, uh, Lucretius, a Roman philosopher, um, and he talks about um, he talks about you know uh, uh, the Earth is aging, right? Uh, it's it's kind of falling apart. It's uh, losing its uh, you know kind of um, it's losing its uh, life force is kind of the way he talks about it. 
Um, and so, again, you might think this looks like, oh, he's talking about something like entropy or, you know, but he's not because he says nothing in creation is the only one. Uh, nothing in nature ever is ever destroyed because um, if it's destroyed here, it will reemerge at some other point in the vastness of the cosmic infinity. Um, and so this is a really important idea uh, that took a long time to dismantle is this uh, this confidence that uh, nothing can ever really be lost from nature. Uh, so be that species, be that the dodo, or be that basically value. Uh, so the recognition, the acknowledgement that uh, value and the potential to create value uh, can be irreversibly lost. Um, yeah, it's a really modern one. Uh, and like I said, you know, that's super important uh, because, you know, um, you know, we often talk about these huge revolutions in the way we think, uh, you know, um, Darwin's theory of natural selection, it, 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 it completely changes how we relate to ourselves in this universe. Uh, you know, it completely changes how we think about what we are and what we can do. This is another one that hasn't really been written about or noticed yet is, uh, you know, this recognition that, yeah, if, um, you know, if, if, if humanity is lost, if, uh, we lose our potential if we destroy it uh, through our own folly or, uh, you know, through insignificant, uh, you know, insufficient precaution. Um, that's it forever. That's a really important idea. And it's, yeah, it's a really new one as well. What was the first existential risk that humans faced as a species? Was there something in, in Paleolithic ancestry where we got down to a population of 12 or something like that? Yeah, so there's this theory, and it's I stress theory. Uh, there's been um, there's been some work more recently that's questioned put put this into question. But there is this uh, this this idea that uh, at some point, um, I think it's uh, seventy five thousand years ago, uh, there was this uh, super eruption. Uh, it's the Toba uh, super volcano. Was it um, Toba? I think it's in, in Indonesia. Um, so. This, and we're talking ginormous, like, you know, uh, there's a cool graph. Uh, if you Google Toba, um, you'll be able to see it. It's, 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 uh, it's a graph of like the size of the volcanic eruptions ranked. And some of the, the you know, the ones that are kind of more memorable, like Krakatoa, they're just like absolute, they're like pimples compared to Toba. It was huge. Um, so, yeah, this absolutely ginormous um, volcanic eruption. Uh, the theory is that it created a... Um, uh, population um, bottleneck uh, because it uh, the climatic format fallout um, seems to have you know um, this is we're talking kind of early um, uh, you know kind of early behaviorally modern humans so that's like you know when we were kind of you know talking doing culture um, there's evidence that you know the, po the population like really narrows down uh, um, through genetics. There's this kind of evidence for this um, at this point, and it kind of you know the dates line up nicely with Toba. Um, so yeah, again, like I said, it's been put into question more recently, but there is you know there is some evidence to show that humanity has come close to the knife edge before, um, and you know that's not surprising because 99.9% .9 of all species that have ever existed. Uh, are now extinct so it's extinction is the rule uh you know uh survival is the exception so um yeah like you know i think that's 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 an important that's an important thing to know is that you know 
potentially we have come close before. Uh, you know, this isn't, um, you know, this isn't, uh, you know, something that is completely uh, unprecedented. Indonesia would have been a real hotspot as well, because that's where an awful lot of humans developed from, right? And I think it was only 12,000 years ago that you had a different homo species that was still existing. You had this sort of pygmy-sized miniature human species that was still existing. So 75,000 years ago, you'd have probably still had Neanderthals, you would have had Homo sapiens, you would have had a few others. So it potentially would have caused this bottleneck for all of them, and then maybe we didn't make it out the other side. And I think that that probably highlights one of the real um, importances with regards to space, space exploration and a s setting up a colony somewhere else. You know, we can look at Elon going to Mars and say, well, it's spending a lot of money and it's taking up, we could be spending this on inequality or on world hungers and stuff like that. But from a civilization God's eye view, this is super important. We need to get ourselves off Indonesia because if the volcano decides to erupt and that can occur in any one of a number of different ways, we also need to make sure that there is no internet connection between us and Mars. <laughs> that maligned artificial general intelligence is not allowed to get up there as well. But my point is like that, that really sort of quite nicely, I think, demonstrates how precarious because we look at that and we think oh yeah but you know they didn't have technology and there was only a small number you may be talking i don't know fifty thousand humans at most i don't know it could be it's not going to be more than a few million humans definitely not such a small number how could that occur and you realize that is just uh an inability to judge scale correctly that for every size that you go up there is an equivalent catastrophe that could then completely annihilate it so what about the first record of a human thinking about our own extinction? Was it was there some philosopher in the in ancient Greece that you found Nostra Bostradamus? <laughs> yeah. Um so no, so so uh all of the people from uh from uh so kind of you know ancient um classical so we're talking like ancient Greeks, Romans, um yeah, they're always when they're talking about these big cataclysms. It's always the case, um, as far as as far as you know, in my opinion, that uh, these are kind of false friends. So this is a this is an idea that I take from linguistics. Is uh, um, there are words where you know in one language uh, they well they sound the same in two languages but mean very different things, right? Um, so I think a, a good example is das Gift. In German means poison, so <laughs> not <yeah>. a gift. <laughs> not a gift, yeah. Um, so I think you get false friends in uh, in in concepts as well. So um, you know, uh, like I was saying earlier, Plato talking about these huge. Uh, the word he uses is conflagrations. So this is like you know fire burning up the world. He says the whole surface of the world has uh, suffered these conflagrations that have uh, wiped out humanity. Um, but, you know, then goes, oh, as it all happens, humanity again in the future. So it's just part of this cycle that I was mentioning. That's a false friend, because on the surface, if you just read that sentence, it's like, oh, Plato had this kind of, you know, nascent, uh, you know, uh, theory, this inchoate theory of um, conflagration as a, as a risk, uh, you know, a civilizational risk. But it's not, because, again, it's not irreversible. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah, all of these uh, pre-modern uh, thinkers, uh, 
it's yeah th th there's always this strange sense where they talk about these you know huge disasters these global um you know um uh burnings or freezings uh, those are the things that seem to attract our intuitions we love fire and ice um uh but it's always yeah within this confidence of um you know, everything lost will later return. Uh, Who gets the hat then? Who's the who's the first person that does it properly? Mm -mm. So there's this kind of um, it's it's very gradual. Uh, so we're talking, um, you know, the scientific revolution that kind of swings around like uh, 1500, 1600. Uh, people start to think scientifically. Um, you might think that that would kind of instantly knock all of this kind of naive thinking um, out of the way, but it really doesn't. You know, there's this thing uh, when you work with like the history of ideas, uh, there's this really persistent um, thing that I call conceptual inertia, uh, where, you know, old ways of thinking persist into new frameworks and do so very stubbornly often. Uh, and so I'm sure we're suffering from a lot of it now that hopefully our forebears, if we make it out of the precipice, uh, will look back on us and see how, uh, you know, see how um, naive we were. But um, yeah, so this conceptual inertia in the scientific revolution uh, is, you know, you have this big shift in worldview uh, to do with people realizing that we're not the center of the universe. Um, so this is the Copernican revolution. Um, the medievals thought that, you know, uh, that the sun goes around the earth. Uh, Kepler, Copernicus, these scientists, they completely changed that. So you might think people are thinking differently now. They might start to think that, you know, if humanity disappears, that would actually be it. That would be really bad because we're this one planet in this, you know, cosmic, uh, cosmic void, this massive uh, expanse. They didn't. Uh, so, you know, you get, um, people, uh, so there's some of the original, the first scientists, uh, so, uh, Edmund Halley, uh, uh, Robert Hooke, these are the, these kind of pioneers of science. Um, they started to think, um, geologically about the history of the planet. Uh, they started to say, oh, there are these huge catastrophes in the past, like massive earthquakes that probably completely reorganized the surface of the earth. Um, but, uh, <laughs> well, actually, Halley is very interesting because he says, um, you know, every time this will have wiped out civilization, it will have reemerged. Um, it's just such a shame that we've lost all of the achievements of that previous civilization. They might have uh, had this learned age where they reach peaks of knowledge way higher than us. Uh, it's just a shame that, you know, um, we'll, we'll have to kind of catch up to them. Um, so even though they're thinking geologically, scientifically, naturalistically, uh, there's still this obstruction here. And the other way that this is expressed, and this is a really important one, is, um, and this is to do with this, this Copernican revolution, this revelation of how huge the universe is. Um, so people would look at these other planets, uh, well, not actually look at them, that happened a lot later, but they would theorize about uh, how, you know, all these other stars, these are, you know, pricks of light in the sky, uh, there are other stars and they must have planets like our own revolving around them. Uh, and they thought, oh, it would be an awful waste of space uh, if they weren't populated. Um, so, yeah, they probably have, uh, all of them probably have aliens on them. And people also presumed that these aliens were actually basically humanoid uh, or, um, you know, were interested in values that were like ours. Uh, so you have this really high confidence uh, that, you know, humans pretty much exist everywhere, or if not humans, the values that matter to us. Uh, so, 
you know, there wasn't there wasn't really a sense of there being any kind of um, uh, possibility for you know wasted opportunity for values or kind of vacuums where there is no value. Uh, value was thought to exist throughout the whole universe. It basically like fills it up. You know, um, this is this idea called the principle of plenitude. Um, so you had to dismantle that before you get this person who gets the hat of being the first person to go, oh, maybe this would really matter. And yeah, it's not as simple as that, unfortunately. You know, there's no one person who goes, oh, uh, if humanity's gone, that's it forever. Um, you know, you find people kind of at the beginning of the 1700s, uh, particularly um, towards the end of the 1700s, starting to play around with the idea of uh, human extinction um and this idea that you know we might disappear the exact same thing might not re-emerge um so there's you know and this is when people started to dig up bones of you know uh, prehistoric beasts um and started to realize that actually there are animals that you know have disappeared and are gone forever so again this irreversibility starts to kind of you know trickle into the picture um but still, I mean, a really good example is from uh, Denis Diderot, this like, you know, kind of massive uh, mind of the French Enlightenment. Um, and, you know, he was at this uh, dinner party uh, with his other friends. You know, they were probably talking about regicide and guillotining the king. Uh, but during one of these conversations, uh, one of them asks Diderot, uh, who, you know, had these kind of, um, uh, you know, quite um, iconoclastic uh materialist theories uh so materialist there means that you know he was just being quite mature and saying maybe spirits and supernatural things don't exist so they asked him at this dinner party they said um can humanity go extinct uh and diderot said yes it can um but you know uh it would just re-evolve again in you know uh however many millions of years uh so yeah, you know, it's 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 this kind of gradual process. I mean, funnily enough, um, and let's actually, I'm going to give you a definitive answer here. Uh, the person who gets the hat is one of Diderot's friends. Um, he was another French philosopher called uh, Baron de Olbach, and he uh, actually has said uh, he said we cannot be sure that all these other planets uh, contain humans, and that humans are therefore the natural end of all kind of uh all evolution uh all natural history obviously evolution not in the darwinian sense back then uh but he said that and then said you know thus therefore if our planet was you know knocked off its course that could be it for humanity so yeah i think you know the, the, uh, let's give him the hat he's the first person to uh you know say yeah uh a ahead of evidence we can't just assume that humans are everywhere and values human values everywhere uh b we can't assume that they're the, the end of everything the purpose of this whole cosmos that we live in uh and see therefore we can't be sure again ahead of good evidence that uh if we screw it up um you know something else will just re-evolve like us i think that that really explains nicely the answer to the first question that i gave you about <clears throat> why is it important for us to look back and given that we're in the scientific post-scientific world utilitarian rationalists i can scott alexander my way to an eliezer yukowski blog and i understand my cognitive biases and like we we believe that we have reality in our grasp but the 
intellectual inertia, cognitive inertia that you just mentioned there, the principle of plentitude as well, this presumption that everything will be okay. When you combine that with, is it scope insensitivity? Scope uh, neglect. Scope yeah. neglect, that's it, sorry. Yeah. Um, that big things are really, really hard for us to, to work out. And as you scale up small mm. things to big things, the death of a person the death of two people doesn't feel as bad as the death of one person and the death of a million people doesn't feel a million times worse than the death of one person so when you combine all of that together i think it it starts to get us to a place where those of us who want to force the existential red pill down everybody's throats actually start to understand why it might be a little bit of a a big medication to swallow um mm. wasn't it thomas jefferson was famous for believing that some animals or that no animals ever went extinct. And you think Thomas, Thomas Jefferson's like, he's modern history, you know, there's like drawings of him and paintings and stuff like that. And he was part of a country that's still around now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so, I mean, if there's anything that my daily work is, it's uh, just cataloging the vast library of how often we're wrong uh and, and 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 not just you know um you know uh normal people but these huge uh these huge great minds so yeah like you know thomas jefferson yeah he's a, he's a great example so um you know and this goes back to um what i was just talking about with you know in the 1700s people started unearthing these these huge bones uh of you know um fossilized bones of unknown beasts and uh, you know Prior to this, I think this is an interesting context, actually. Prior to this, scientists um, and natural philosophers uh, presumed that fossils were, um, they didn't think that they were um, the kind of impressions of prehistoric animals. Um, that was, again, I think this is a great example of what we were talking about earlier of, uh, you know, it seems so obvious now uh, that fossils are you know kind of the evidence of prehistoric animals like you know when you're a kid and you watch jurassic park like you understand that uh but this took centuries for people to figure out uh so the medieval theory so during the middle ages uh what people thought was that um these strange animalistic imprints in rocks uh were actually nature playing jokes on us uh, so they had this idea of the kind of scale of being, the great chain of being. So it's that everything is in this kind of ordered uh, hierarchy uh, from, you know, rocks to plants to oysters to monkeys to man. Uh, and they thought that fossils were evidence of where rocks had like uh, basically become upstart and wanted to, you know, jump above their um, their, their their office, basically. Uh, so, you know, it's, this is this is this is how people thought and you know it's it's I, I i find it really charming and i love it but you know it's it's yeah again people can be so wrong for them you know yeah we're, we're often very wrong about a lot of things so this is how people thought for a long time about these fossils da vinci was one of the first people to go hang on maybe these are impressions of uh of, of animals from you know the deep past um and yeah so you know, people used to kind of study, it was mainly shells, like small, uh, you know, small, um, small fossils that was very easy to say, you know, this animal, uh, we might not see it in our kind of vicinity uh, alive. We might only have fossil evidence of it, but it probably exists somewhere else in the world. Um, and that was how people, uh, you know, for a long time, 
got around the fact that we had evidence of fossils, uh, but we don't want to accept species extinctions or the possibility that nature could irreversibly, again, irreversibly lose uh, any part of it. Uh, and so this was this kind of, you know, tricky maneuver that all these very clever scientists took to deny the possibility of, of extinction of anything. Um, you know, yeah, then people started finding mammoth bones, mastodon bones, uh, and people started to accept, scientists started to accept that perhaps species extinction was a thing that has happened and will happen again. Um, and this was in the late 1700s. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, yeah, he still thought this even up until the point when, uh, you know, the scientific consensus was reached. So it's like in the 1780s, he was still writing letters to people, very confidently claiming that mammoths uh, still exist in the uh, kind of un unexplored regions of the Americas. So we just need to go and find a mammoth and then, you know, we don't need to worry about extinction anymore. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, no, you're right. You're absolutely right to link this up into, uh, you know, the kind of, prevalence of bias and wrong think uh yeah it's it, it you know i want to give this hopeful message of you know uh how far we've come and how important all that is uh but at the same time you know you only reach that by seeing how how you know vastly wrong we often are yeah every age has probably had its cassandras right the the people that were certain that the end was on its way and you highlight some differences between extinction and apocalypse and between prophecy and prediction. Can you lay out how all of this works for us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I guess listeners might have already thought, you know, what's this guy talking about? Uh, people have been thinking about the end of the world forever. Uh, have you, I often have get you not read the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly i often get that comment it's uh yeah it's it's one of the more common uh comments is uh, what has this is guy... judgment day yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. yeah has this guy not read the book of revelations um so yeah the, the claim i make is that apocalypse is distinct from extinction uh and what i mean by that is that you know you look at um the end of the world as it's presented in religious traditions and mythological traditions uh, and often uh, it's seen as the consummation or the fulfillment of the moral order. Uh, so what I mean by that is think of, um, think of Judgment Day, the Christian version. It's, it's just in the words, Judgment Day. It's the, the revelation of how God thinks everything should be. So it's the consummation of morality. It's not like, you know, it's not anything bad, even though we might be, it might be very inscrutable to us mere mortals. Uh, we might not be able to understand it fully. You know, God's decree, that tribunal is ultimately the right decree. So, you know, another image that um, pops up is this idea of sorting the good from the bad. That's what the end of the world judgment day is kind of this point where uh, the good from the bad is all fully sorted. Everything's in its right place. And that's the end. And, you know, then the curtains can close. Um, that's not actually a bad thing. It might be the end of time, but it's, you know, it's actually really great. Like, uh, like I said, morality is fulfilled in this uh, instance. So in the modern naturalistic scientific idea of extinction, it's completely different. It's not just, you know, uh, a new version of that old idea of apocalypse. It's actually a contradictory concept because, Instead of the um, the ultimate uh, fulfillment of morality, it's the 
irreversible frustration of it. Um, at least, you know, kind of human morality. And, and going back to this point about aliens and other planets, uh, as far as we know, we're the only uh, animal that follows ethical argumentation that's able to, you know, kind of think about um, moral reasons and what should be and what shouldn't be. Um, so, you know, if we're gone, all of that is frustrated, potentially irreversibly. Um, and that's really important. You know, those are completely contradictory ways of looking at this. Uh, so there's a the pithy way that I like to put it is that, uh, you know, apocalypse supplies a sense of an ending, uh, whereas extinction uh, anticipates the ending of sense. Um, so it's this idea that, uh, you know, meaning and purpose are irreversibly frustrated within this vast physical cosmos this vast silent physical cosmos that continues quasi-purposely uh, without us. And yeah, you know, as a final point, that's also just a really simple, uh, another point to make, a really simple one, is that um, often in religious apocalypses, uh, the physical cosmos does not go on without us, it ends with us. Um, or it's again nested in these cycles. So a lot of uh, Eastern kind of uh, ideas. So the Buddhist uh, apocalypse, it's, you know, this cyclical, you know, the world ends, it gets reborn, it burns, it gets recreated. Um, so yeah, you know, nothing's at stake in apocalypse, whereas in extinction, everything is at stake. It's like an egotistic metaphysical uh, Copernican view of ourselves, right? That, the Earth's the center of the universe, but not only that, we are the center of the universe. And not only are we the center of the universe, we are the bookend to the universe, because without us, what is the point of the universe? But oddly, that line of reasoning, without us, what is the point of the universe, is still what we're continuing forward now. The two potential answers that we have to the Fermi paradox of where are all the aliens, one is there aren't any, it's just us. The other is, they're out there. Both of them are fascinating. Both of them are terrifying. But they do have, slightly presuming that the aliens that we're talking about also have morality and the ability to step into their own ethics and stuff like that. The differences are quite profound because it is the difference between being every other semi-sentient being, bottlenose dolphins and, and, and bonobos and stuff like that, isn't crew aboard spaceship earth they're cargo we are crew we can affect the direction of what is going to happen we can save the other animals we can uh, uh, allow them to exist at greater and greater levels of comfort and of bliss and of happiness right and we can also do that to ourselves and then we can scale that across the universe um it's so interesting to see this apocalyptic approach. The it is it very much is a, a, a very ego driven sort of Copernican centric this human centric view of everything. And why wouldn't it be that way? When you're told that God built the world and the universe in six days, and the most important thing that he built was on the sixth day, and it was the humans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, all of your culture, all of your stories, all the narratives that you've been given are telling you this is why everything is here. You are why everything is here. This is how special you are. And I think this might also highlight why I love existential risk so much 
that it's the same as looking at the night sky. It provides an equal amount of awe and dread. And it reminds me that the universe very, very much is indifferent whether or not we continue going on. And it is our stone to roll up the hill if we want to do it. Um, and yeah, upon realizing that, I, I think that also probably highlights why the denial of death thing from Ernest Becker kind of gets macro aggregated across people with this. It's a very uncomfortable topic to think about because it reminds you that no one's coming to save you. No one gives a shit. Nothing cares about whether or not we continue to exist or not, except for us, which means it's all on us. There is risk, there is responsibility, and the book stops with us. Yeah, yeah, I could, I couldn't agree more. Um, if there's one, if there's one major theme of uh, what I've written on this history, it's the it's breaking the spell on that kind of wishful thinking. Um, where we allow what we want the world to be to contaminate our theories of what the world actually is. So really broad brush generalization and being unfair to lots of very clever people that came before us and whose shoulders that we stand upon. But the pre-modern worldview often, you know, isn't, often doesn't really even think uh, that there's a distinction between ethics and physics. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, take, for example, the the, the medieval cosmos, um, you know, this is the pre-Copernican one, the idea of Earth in the center, there are these uh, concentric nested spheres, uh, and not at the edge, there's this prim and mobile, it's the outer sphere, that's where God lives, that's where all the value, the best stuff is. Um, all of those spheres is populated with hierarchies of angels, uh, you know, the whole thing, there's value suffusing the whole thing, um, but the very structure of the cosmos, right? The, the whole, the whole structure is the moral order. So that's what I mean by there's no distinction between ethics and physics. There, I perceive, you know, part of the uh, what kickstarted science and, um, you know, not just science as this, you know, uh, disinterested objective endeavor of finding out, you know. Uh, the how things hang together, how the facts hang together in the broadest possible sense. But this newer uh, idea of how we can then, knowing those facts, get our values to fit together with this picture in the broadest possible sense. So I guess, I mean, what is to be done? You know, we've learned a lot about the cosmos, uh, the objective, physical, you know, uh, uninterested, uh, unresponsive cosmos in independence of us. We've learned a lot about that, but now we're asking this question of how do our values, how could our values um, uh, fit into this? And yeah, I see this is this is all part of this um, this picture. So yeah, you have to kind of um, basically shake off that wishful thinking of thinking that you know, in independence of what we do, the universe is just a great place and uh, you know, kind of aligns with our values no matter what. Um, which I think is the default way of, um, of of human thinking. So you know, uh, there's this idea um, of uh, in the philosophy of science of folk psychology, um, where or another word for it is the manifest image, um, as opposed to the scientific image. Uh, the manifest image is you know our picture of the world as filled with colors, intentions, emotions, uh, all the things that we're used to on our daily daily lives. The scientific image is this really barren, alien place 
that's made up of atoms, electrons, uh, you know, subatomic forces. Um, you know, you have to realize that distinction and the fact that the way the world actually is is not the way we want it to be or it should be or it ought to be uh, to then reintegrate and think of, well, okay, we've realized that. We've woken up. We've broken the spell. Uh, how the, what do we do next? Um, how do we make this world uh, that, you know, just is the way it is independently of us? How do we make it into the one uh, that we want, uh, or not just that we want, but that would be worthy uh, in some, uh, you know, meteor moral sense? Um, and yeah, you know, the, this wide-scale history that I try and tell of us waking up to the possibility of extinction, it's this, you know, uh, it's this kind of landmark event in that. It's realizing that, you know, um, Everything rests on us, uh, not because we're the center of the universe, but because the universe simply doesn't care about us. Um, but strangely enough, that also kind of re-centralizes everything upon us, um, you know, until we find evidence to the contrary. Uh, and I hope we do. I, I, I'm very hopeful. You know, I, I, I want SETI to be, uh, you know, a successful endeavor. Um, I hope there are wiser beings out there than us. Uh, but we can't just act as if there are um, ahead of that evidence. So yeah, it's this, you know, it's this strange historical dance between disillusion and, um, you know, that mature, uh, that mature recognition of, yeah, I feel alienated by the possibility of extinction uh, in a way that, you know, uh, the version of me that lived 500 years ago just simply couldn't be. Yeah. I'm alienated by that. It terrifies me, but this is the thing I often say is, you know, if, if I'm hurtling towards a cliff edge, if I'm driving, you know, 60 miles per hour towards a cliff edge, I want to know where that cliff edge is uh, rather than just wishfully thinking, oh, yeah, I'll, you know, the car will be fine. I'll be fine. There's no cliff edge, whatever. So I see, yeah, um, another way you could put this is, you know, waking up to extinction is kind of a, a, a Santa Claus isn't real moment for the human race. Um and yeah, you know, it might be disillusioning, it might be uh, upsetting, it might be alienating, but it was something that we needed to do uh, if we were to have a future. Um, so yeah, I think it's, again, like I say, it's a massive achievement. And, you know, we need to keep that in view uh, with the future, because I feel that, you know, it's so easy to be dis to be disillusioned with uh, human potential, uh, to focus on... Uh, to focus on the kind of the atrocities of the recent past um, and think that that um, think that that there's an inevitability that that will color the whole future. Um, so you know we need to. Um, I'm not saying that we don't. We, I'm not saying that we should forget. You know the, 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 these things, but. Um, yeah, I think that there's often there's often it's particularly when we talk about the space colonization discussion, there's often a kind of uh, I refer to as a geocentrism about history. This idea that we will repeat, just repeat everything, um, you know, all these kind of uh, mistakes of the past. That's just what spreading outwards will do. C.S. Lewis has this great quote where he you know says, "I feel sorry for the aliens" is basically his sentiment because you know us horrible sinners are going to go out and you know ruin the galaxy um you know that, that's a form of geocentrism just like uh thinking that the earth is a center of the universe thinking that our um history colors our future and of course it does in, in, in an important sense but the work is you know keeping an eye on 
the places where real progress has happened and seeing the capacity um because and this goes back to the point of you know uh dolphins and uh you know marmosets and you know all these other very incredibly intelligent animals that we share this planet with um is one way of talking about you know humans are the only animal that responds to ethical argumentation that can sound really abstract and really um kind of up in the clouds i think a good way of making that concrete is we're the only animal that's ever corrected itself uh it's ever thought oh what i previously thought was wrong about what i should do or what i think about the world um so yeah we've been really wrong but we have that capacity to correct ourselves and that's the capacity to make the world a better place so um you know yeah i really like your um the the cargo and uh and crew uh i think toby this is a way that toby ord puts it but um is that you know animals are like moral patients we're moral patients but also moral agents so you know i I see there's a uh you know the crew cargo is another way of putting that so yeah i you know um history can be hopeful yeah i don't know what it is about this time at the moment everybody that's listening and yourself knows and you have very cleverly sort of managed to evade the uh, social justice precipice of saying that there aren't any problems right now and that we don't have anything to fix in your little sort of last monologue there and it's because at the moment there are to me it would appear that there is an obsession with injustices and many of them are indeed injustices that need to be fixed but i think it discounts so much of how far we've come it discounts this view that you've given us of just how backward our views were when only thomas jefferson was on the planet not long ago and yet when we have these times of crises when we have times of real serious bloodshed and apocalypse and concern and catastrophe people have to center their values in the time of a real crisis, we focus our values. In the time of no crisis, we create our own. And I think that the problem right now is that people think there is no crisis. I don't think, because the existential risk, the potential for human catastrophe and the permanent and irreversible stop of the human pursuit isn't there at the forefront of our minds. If we found out that there was a meteor that was heading toward Earth and it was going to hit us within the next 1,000 years and we had it with certainty, and the news story said the same, I think everybody would live life in a very different sort of way. Some ways better, some ways worse. But I think it would bind us together as a civilization. I think it would stop us from focusing on things that, in the grand scheme of human civilization, don't matter. As Toby Ord says in The Precipice, we are shuffling currently along this cliff edge. It's real precarious. And we only need to do this for a little bit of time. I'm not saying that we need to completely dispense with trying to fix the wrongs that are going on in the world. What I'm saying is that right now, there is a very, very important job that needs to be done by all of human civilization. And it is a game of whether or not we get past it or we don't. And if we don't, it doesn't matter how much social injustice you've fixed. What I think that's led to, and everybody will know this sentiment at the moment, is this oddly homo-deprecating view that the world has, where we talk about, listen to people talk about ecology and the environment, like as if we go out of our, as if dropping a can on the floor is because you hate the world, as if because the fact that you don't drive an electric car or you don't get the bus to work or you don't get the, the uh, 
cycle to work is because you actively hate mother nature and she's rebelling against us and we just start personifying and adding narratives like it's like fucking 2000 bc do you know what i mean like we're just layering all of this real primitive thinking that we've got about the sacred and the profane meanwhile cardi b's on stage singing about a wap and no one cares so all of this bizarre human hating that's going on both within culture and within certain subgroups within people i think that a lot of that would be fixed if we understood just how close we are to complete annihilation of everything that you care about of everything that your genetics down the line can ever care about and of the ability to save the opportunity to step into programming i think that's what you said there the opportunity and the ability for humans to step into their own programming to redirect the direction in which they are going is what matters and um man i really really hope that the work of the guys at the future humanities institute continues to blow up we need we need a greta thunberg of existential risk and i mean that in in a very very real way like we need a front of time magazine social media savvy great speaker that gets the 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 world behind them because it is the biggest question that we all have one thing that i haven't heard you talk about and i'd love to know your opinion on this given the fact that you've done such a broad view look over this subject over the past of history just how important do you think this period of the last 30 years with Parfit and Bostrom and Ord, how much, if you were drawing a graph in terms of progress and understanding, how much of a hockey stick has that been? Is it linear or has that really been a marked jump in our understanding around existential risk? Yeah, I think um, if you wanted to, uh, yeah, if you, if you, had, if you had, had to you know, depict it pictorially, I think it has been. Yeah, there's a step change. Um, and... Again, you know, this is one of my senses from studying the history of ideas and the history of intellectual progress is um, that that progress is often lumpy and, you know, kind of uneven. And there's, you know, it was kind of punctuated. Right. Um, and that's often because these ideas require lots of smaller sub ideas to come together. So, you know, you have it bubbling away, these sub ideas, but they're not you know, converging and then bam. And I think we've just gone through um We've just gone through a point like that. So, I mean, I'm hopeful about, um, I'm not despondent about the fact that, you know, not enough people are talking about existential risk. Uh, I mean, there's one thing to be sensitive of is like, you know, thinking about the long-term future and how all of our potential vastly outweighs, you know, uh, the, you know, the present and all that stuff. There's this issue of fanaticism that the community around this is very aware of. So it's this idea um, that, you know, uh basically when you're thinking of these you know huge potential ahead of us uh it can outweigh you know any sensible decision at the moment because we'd want to vouchsafe that regardless of anything so you know this is this is something that the you know community is very self self-conscious of and it's an issue within you know this te very technical ethical uh discussion um so that's yeah that's one thing to to be uh, aware of um yeah another thing is i'm hopeful because um uh it's 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 new that's why there aren't many people that are talking about it it's because it's new uh these ideas haven't been around for long and it often takes a while for ideas to really catch on and to 
start to trickle through the you know relevant uh, streams, the you know the relevant institutions. Um, so yeah, I think it, it's it's new. It's 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 new, and that's why. Um, and um, so I am hopeful that the, the discussion will continue. And I I don't think that um, uh, you know people talking about other things like you know Greta Thunberg she's not like taking resources from people to talking about existential risk so and you know climate change is actually a, like it might not be an existential risk in the sense they'll uh you know destroy homo sapiens all of them but it could actually irreversibly make our future poorer and less well off uh so you know it's I think it has to you have to you have to balance all these things yeah I agree thinking about something that you brought up which I'd read in a book ages ago and I'd totally forgotten about and is absolutely fascinating can you explain what the doomsday argument is please <laughs> yeah I'll I'll give it a try so um there's 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 different versions of it uh and interestingly uh appear around the same time in independently so this is a, another thing in the history of science i'm going to nerd out about the history of science for a second is uh often really great ideas um people independently arrive upon them around the same time why do you think uh, that is i think it's again similar to what i was talking about earlier is uh there are all these subcomponent ideas that require uh, that are required to uh then reach um the big theory. Uh, so natural selection required an awareness of species extinctions in the past. It requires an awareness of population dynamics, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so Darwin came up with it, but so did uh, Alfred Russell Wallace uh, almost at the same time, completely independently. Anyway, doomsday argument. Um, basically, uh, you should, applying the Copernican principle, the principle of mediocrity, um, we should assume that we're in a... Uh, in a um, unexceptional, uh, unexceptional uh, place, uh, and that applies. That principle can be applied very broadly, uh, and so when you apply it to our position in human history, uh, so imagine a reference class of all humans ever born, uh, ordered from um, ordered temporarily. So obviously, it's arbitrary. The first human ever is arbitrary in a sense because you know evolution. Uh, but imagine first human ever last human humans ever um we should we should assume that we're in an unexceptional unexceptional uh placement within that broad broad reference class right um so given uh given one of the versions makes a reference to population uh and how population has expanded and uh if humanity survives into the long term will expand a lot more uh it's far more likely that we are later on where there are more people uh so imagine this is a curve than we are very early on uh where there are barely any so the the analogy that's often used is um uh imagine that uh imagine that you have an, uh, a bag of of balls um and you Someone, someone's told you that this bag either has five balls in it or a hundred balls in it, um, and you pick the number four, uh, you would rationally presume that you've got the bag with the five balls, right? Um, so applying that reasoning to that, you know, long scale human race, uh, 
you have you know you have to yeah the, the, the conclusion is that we're probably living later on towards the end uh now this gets into all kinds of thorny issues um uh, you know super complicated uh kind of reasoning and it's it's very interesting um uh, and it's very controversial as well. So, um, yeah, I think the best place to go to find out more about it is actually the Wikipedia page. Um, I think Vox did quite a good explainer on it as well. But it's 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 a really fascinating argument, um, really technical, really complicated. But uh, and There'll also be a Reddit bending. thread. There'll be a Reddit thread somewhere. Reddit's explained everything. Reddit's becoming like the new Wikipedia, I think. Thinking about sort of looking forward, what lessons can we learn from looking at our extinction that inform the Enlightenment mission moving forward? How do we carry this into the future? Mm, mm. So I think that, um, I think, and this goes back to uh, what I was saying about disillusion, is um, we had this Enlightenment uh, where some really brilliant ideas were invented, some pretty bad ones were implemented as well. Um, we had that, you know, uh, 300 years ago, began 300 years ago. Um, and then afterwards we'd entered into this um, period afterwards where uh, certain other cultural forces have start, you know, come into the picture, started to compete with that enlightenment idea of progress of human potential of um the capacity for reason to correct itself to um uh to basically supply reasons to everything uh so you know uh, remove the arbitrary the unjust the irrational from uh not just our picture of our the world but our conduct within it um we've had this kind of counter the counter enlightenment was actually a historical moment but i think that we're still there's still um it's still a prominent cultural strain of these counter enlightenment uh you know it can be pessimistic it can be romantic um there are these cultural strains um around that you know the the the, the big philosophers like nietzsche uh you know um uh some of the you know, 20th century philosophers as well like from sartre uh, down to Derrida, they're all kind of playing with these uh, anti-enlightenment ideas. Now, I don't want to make predictions about uh, culture because there are so many degrees of freedom that you'd be an idiot to do so, but I do feel that um, that, that disillusion with, with enlightenment and uh, its capacity, so not just what it was, but what it could be, taking the good bits out of it uh, and critiquing the bad bits, um, you know, it's kind of growing up and this is what the Enlightenment, you know, the, the big dogs of the Enlightenment said themselves. Kant said that it, it is just, uh, you know, um, humanity using its own reason to exit its infancy. Um, this is where the metaphor comes from, actually, where you see Sagan, uh, you, you know, Carl Sagan said uh, that we're, we're in this period of technological adolescence. Um, defined by this mis, you know, this misfit, this disjunct between our might and our wisdom. Um, that's where the metaphor comes from. It actually comes from uh, Kant and his, his enlightenment forebears. So anyway, what I'm saying is, uh, you know, we had this period of enlightenment, then we had the kind of uh, critique of it, which is itself part of the enlightenment, is criticizing, uh, you know, critiquing um, and 
unveiling the biases, unveiling the un the injustices. Um, and we're still kind of living through this point. And I think it's, it is, in a sense, to use Sagan's term, it is a kind of adolescent phase where it's like we've realized our capacities, we've realized the sheer damage we can do to ourselves and this world that we live in. Uh, and lots of people react to that with this, this continuing disillusion of this is awful, humans are awful. Um, we can be, right? And it's, you know, again, these these metaphors can become cheesy and they can become very broad brush and very overgeneralized. But I think we are going through that, you know, not just this technological adolescence, but also this kind of adolescence in our image of ourselves and what we can do within the world and what, uh, you know, what we should do, uh, what we ought to do. Um, yeah, where, you know, there's a lot of disillusion um, and taking this really broad, broad, long term view of human history and culture and ideas uh, that I like to do. I see that as just a necessary step in, you know, waking up and uh, growing up. And, you know, when you're a teenager, there are times when you, you know, do something really awful and, you know, uh, screw up. And then you feel really bad about yourself. Uh, but then you learn that that's just part of this process. And so, yeah, you know, real broad brush, long term uh, talking, I think that you know as a uh, civilization um, and obviously you know again that's a big abstraction there are lots of parts and there are lots of uh, parts below that but i think we're going through that phase right now um and yeah so i'm hopeful as to what to come what's 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 to come next uh you know we've realized how bad we can be uh but now we can focus on stopping that badness from uh from you know um coming to the fore and we can focus on what we can do uh, and our potential. We are gods, but for the wisdom. Who's that? Uh, that is Eric Weinstein, actually. Oh, right. And Daniel Schmachtenberger said, we're gods, we're just shitty gods, uh, which is <laughs> the same thing said in a different way. One thing that's just popped into my head there, mate, do you think that we're further ahead in terms of ethics or technology? Um... I mean, they're kind of uh, uh, uncomparable. Uh, I, I, I know that that's a, an apples and oranges <laughs> comparison, but if you were to think about... Personally, to me, it, it seems like we're further ahead in technology. It seems like our, our technological power outstrips our wisdom. We've made a mm. lot of progress. We made a lot of progress with ethics, with understanding what good is and how to act in the world. Um, but it seems like we're able to scale technological progress much more quickly than that. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So caveat aside of, you know, incomparability, um, broadly, yeah, we are definitely ahead in uh, technological uh, progress. Um, this, is actually a, this is actually a point that Parfit makes, you know, to loop back to the beginning. This is a point that Parfit makes um, in this argument about how bad extinction would be. Um, is he points out that applied ethics so um you know not just thinking about what value is and arguing about meta ethics which is you know what value is and how we can define it but arguing how we can actually implement our ideas of value into the world so like you know making ethics effective um is actually really young um and so as part of his wider argument that human extinction would be so awful because we have this vast future ahead of us if we get things right um he says you know you can be uh kind of 
aggregative about it and say, you know, there will be so many zero, 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 zero uh, future human uh, lives. But he says there are also these intr intrinsic goods, these intrinsic values. Um, uh, so like art, um, uh, science, right? Knowing about the world. Uh, but then he points to this other one is um, ethics. And he says, this is the most immature field of them all. Uh, is It's only since the Enlightenment that uh, people have um, been doing secular ethics. So thinking about morality without God breathing down the back of your neck. Um, and it's only even more recently than that, pe that people like Parfit himself have been dedicating uh, their entire lives to the pursuit of this uh, and trying to, you know, um, create, you know, get that low hanging fruit when it comes to, uh, you know, moral progress. So that, that was um, the words yeah. that I had in my head, the low, yeah, right. the, so, the low hanging fruit. So I think, um, I think, uh, yes, we are in this stage where our, you know, our might kind of outstrips our, um, our wisdom. Uh, we are in our technological adolescence um, or the precipice, you know, however you want to describe it. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's, you know, that, that again, you know, I think that there's big potential for, for moral progress. And, uh, you know, people are working on these things like applied ethics is booming. There's this effective altruist movement where people are, you know, thinking how best can we use our resources? Uh, there's, uh, you know, a, a kind of offshoot of that. Uh, more recently, um, long-termism is this, uh, you know, um, idea. And I, I, the precipice, Toby Orr's precipice is kind of the, the, the um, I guess, the founding uh, text of this. But um, And there's a lot, lots of work uh, coming out of the Global Priorities Institute, which is kind of the sister institute of the Future of Humanity Institute, on this long-termism. Yeah, and it's about, you know, how can we, how can we do applied ethics? And uh, so, yeah, I, I think... You know, our technology is outstripping our, our wisdom right now, but um, there's 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 low-hanging fruit to be picked. There's some good players about to run out onto the pitch for the applied ethics team as well. I hope so, man. I really do. I think um, I think it's very timely for you to to release a book about the, the history of existential risk. I really do. Um, the Precipice by Toby Ord is a fucking magnum opus. I, I absolutely adore that book. Um, super intelligence, fantastic uh uh, what is it human compatible by Stuart russell which came out last year that's also fantastic but this thomas moynan x risk how humanity discovered its own extinction um dude you've done a really really good job with this the number of footnotes is absolutely terrifying um it's it's completely ridiculous and uh for anybody that's enjoyed this conversation today it will be linked in the show notes below i've also added this to my amazon reading list because that's how much i enjoyed it so go and check this out if you want. Uh, anywhere else that you want to send people? Um, my website is thomasmoynihan.xyz. Uh, I keep that updated with uh, like short essays that I do. Um, so yeah, I think that's it. Perfect, man. The end of civilization hasn't occurred during this podcast, so we've managed to make it through. Thank you for coming on. Cheers. Thanks a lot for having me.